Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 1980 science fiction has all of those elements that make greatness in cinema and storytelling. It changed everything. And I loved it. We felt so creative, and we were so loose. Wow, what a great concept. It's the positiveness that made for repeat viewing. It's timeless. Knock me out. Surpasses our brains and goes straight to our heart. Welcome to Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. From our screens to your watch list, we gather to share and discuss your next favorite. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. And now, here's your host, Armand Haddad. Hello and welcome to another episode of Syndicate. I am your host, Armand Haddad. This season, we are shining the spotlights on independent films and the power of cinema within our lives. Today, I have the privilege of having the director of the upcoming documentary, In Search of Tomorrow, here today, David Weiner. David, welcome to Syndicate. Thank you for welcoming me to Chicago. My family's from Chicago, so uh, you get you get bumped up to the top of the list. Oh my goodness, that is so crazy! It's such a small world. Um, so, where's your family based in Chicago? Because right now I'm in West Loop. Oh, okay, yeah, they're they're in the North Shore. We were never downtown, although my sister lived down uh, close to downtown and bounced around. But uh, I have a Northwestern family. Uh, everybody went to Northwestern except me. I was the black sheep and went to Ithaca in upstate New York. Oh wow! But uh, yeah, my parents, uh, you know, are from Chicago and met in Chicago, and you know, uh, their whole family's there. But I, I'm the guy who strayed over to uh, the, the glitz and the glamour of Hollywood. <laughs> so right now you're based in L.A., right? That's correct. Yes. Wow. Do you go to Disneyland a lot? Uh, it's funny that you mention that because we have not been to Disneyland in you know two plus years. We, right. we, we, I have a family, wife and child, and, um, he's a young kid. So we are, I have no choice but to be a Disneyphile and, <laughs> and, and, and drink the Mickey Mouse Kool-Aid and, and live my best life in the various theme parks. And so, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because we're going on Saturday and that's the first time we're going in 
you know, two plus years of hibernation from some pesky COVID something or other that we've been experiencing. Awesome. Well, enjoy Space Mountain. Enjoy Indiana Jones <laughs> ride. And Amazing. Star Wars uh, Galaxy's Edge. That's now my my go-to. I'm excited for that. Have you? Okay. Before we get into your movie, I have to ask, did That's you fine. go on Rise of the Resistance yet? Uh, it was not. Oh, I've been there once. So the last time we went to uh, Disneyland before everything closed was the first time that I went to Galaxy's Edge, and that ride was not open yet. So I did do the Millennium Falcon Smuggler's mm. Run, where I got to pilot the Falcon, which was oh, wow. super, super, super cool. And um, growing up as a kid, Star Wars, I'm, I'm, I'm the generation that Star Wars rocked our world and, and changed our lives and pointed right. us west to Hollywood to make movies. Uh, I, I can connect it all to Star Wars. And when you're a kid and you think about living in a Star Wars world that is a fantasy world, this is a, this really is this Galaxy's Edge. And listen, I'm not being I'm not a paid shill for Disney. All I could <laughs> say is they did an amazing job, and, and it's very immersive. My my concern was that it looked kind of small from the pictures, mm. but once you're in, it's very detailed and and uh, intricate and labyrinthine, labyrinthine, mm-hmm. big labyrinth. And oh, yeah. so you really feel like you're in. Star Wars world, and then you turn a corner, and there's the Millennium Falcon just sitting there, life size. Absolutely, it's just all I can say is that you got to put a put a, a stop on your credit card at a certain limit because <laughs> it's dangerous. Your food is right. good. I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. I'm just looking forward to getting out and interacting with other alien species again. <laughs> Absolutely. So I've been to Galaxy's Edge Batu uh, about two. Th- yeah, two times already, and one of those times I was on the Rise of the Resistance down in Florida, mm-hmm. and Smuggler's Run is amazing, but, like, Rise of the Resistance, like, Disney has a great job. They do a great job of, like, immersing the person within the world of wherever they are, and with Galaxy's Edge, you feel like you're on another planet, oh, and with Rise of the Resistance, you feel like you're in the movie. It's incredible. <laughs> I don't know how they do it, but it's like... If you go on it, you're going to be blown away. You're going to be like a kid again. And I'm glad that we brought up Star Wars right now because like Star Wars is truly the linchpin for the themes that we're, we're going to traverse in your documentary, mm-hmm. In Search of Tomorrow. Because um, I feel like Star Wars is truly the linchpin of 80s sci-fi. So before we get into your film proper, um, I do have to ask, since you've made, I think, four five-ish documentaries well, this, already it, about the 1980s yeah this is the third one out of the gate and i have a fourth in the works so i did uh mm-hmm. and sorry to interrupt your question but just to clarify i did in search of darkness part one and two which is about 80s horror in search of tomorrow is now done and, and that's out now so we're talking about that that's about 80s sci-fi and uh by popular demand we're making in search of darkness part three which is another dive back into the underbelly of 80s horror because there's so much amazing stuff to Truly. talk about Truly. And just like with the eighties horror, like you can't, you can't match it. And then with eighties sci-fi, you truly can't match it again. So I have to ask what draws you towards the 1980s? Well, I am a person who was born in 1968. So I was a seventies kid and an eighties teen. And mm. so I was, I was living the John Hughes life. You know, my life was like the kids in breakfast club and Ferris Bueller's day off. And, uh, you know, I went to a boarding school, so, you know, might as well throw in class while you're at it, you know? Um, right. All these movies uh, uh, had a real certain feel 
to them. Uh, now, of course, it was just real time when I was watching them. Uh, but ever since Star Wars uh, really just sort of impacted my, my mind, I became much more interested in film after I saw Star Wars. I walked into that theater just wanting to see a movie as a kid. I was nine years old. I walked out of that a changed human being. Uh, I wanted to be, I wanted other people to be, feel as exhilarated as I did from that experience. And that set me on a path of, I want to try and make movies like this myself. I want to find out how movies like this are made. You know, I really did. I, I, it, it no longer was about, I want to see a movie. I needed to know everything about how a movie was made from writing a film to craft and crafting a story to the special effects, to the models, to the visual effects, whatever it was, the practical creature effects. Um, and that's down the horror path as well. Like with American werewolves in London, you know, and Rick Baker's work and the amazing transformation of that werewolf. So these movies, uh, I was just at the perfect age where my imagination was, was met with uh, the moxie of the filmmakers who had the budget and the resources and the expanding technology to really create craft, just amazing, amazing tales. And uh, sci-fi specifically is such a broad genre. You know, it straddles so many other things, so many subgenres within sci-fi. So sci-fi doesn't, in terms of the definition and the way I approached In Search of Tomorrow, I was like, what is that definition for me so I know what I can talk about? Uh, and it ultimately comes down to uh, technology and the what if of technology and the impact of technology on present day or the future or the past. But you could get into Frankenstein territory or Swamp Thing territory. You can get into the post-apocalyptic landscape, you know, of uh, you know Mad Max and all, this, all the knockoffs of Mad Max. You can go into outer space, but you can go to a galaxy far, far away. That works for me, even though a lot of people like to say Star Wars is fantasy. You know, it's very much sci-fi. Uh, and I'm not going to, you know, pick at the, the specifics. I, I, I don't right. think, you know, that that conversation has place with what I'm doing. You know, so if an alien shows up in your backyard in E.T. or if an alien wants to kill you on a, you know, a base in Antarctica and threaten to take over the world. These are the stories that are really, really uh, interesting to me in the 80s. And hand in hand with that, movies like, you know, War Games. That to me is sci-fi because it's just, you know, present day and present day technology, but it's the what if of if you could start World War Three from your own bedroom by accident, you know, what would right. you do and can that be done and, and how would yeah. that you know play out? Yeah, you did an excellent job. So I watched uh, your entire documentary and you did a great you do a great job of like showing every aspect of the sci-fi genre, like from the sci-fi horror with the thing to like the more grounded sci-fi with war games, like you just said, because like I, when watching war games growing up, I didn't really think of it as sci-fi. I thought of it like, I don't know, like a thought experiments on thermonuclear war and like Mm -hmm. kind of like the warning label of like, this is why it's bad because (laughs) (laughs) it would destroy everybody. Like there's no points of playing the game the way you win the game is not playing at all. So, um, so your documentary is nearly five hours long Mm -hmm. and I do have to ask, um, because your tagline is the definitive, uh, 80 sci-fi documentary. And I feel like it's true because you catalog the entire decade within one movie. Um, did you feel like, you know, as you're directing it, as you're putting it together, 
there was more to tell and like you had to like condense it down and what the condensed version was yeah. five hours long. Believe it or not, five hours is not nearly enough time to cover a whole decade's worth of, of work and creativity and imagination. Um, the, the movie is structured from 1980 to 1989, where within each year we, we dive into a number of specific films. Uh, and then in between uh, each year, you have a larger context chapter, you know, whether it's about the Cold War or whether it's about visual effects or practical creature effects or music scores or the marketing of these films. There's a lot that's beyond that goes beyond these movies. You know, it's a much bigger picture in terms of when we think about the cinema of the 80s. You're talking a lot more about not just only the films themselves and the making of the films and the anecdotes of the people who are in them talking about it or the people who are influenced by it talking about it, uh, but why these films were made, what they were in response to, whether it was the, right. you know, the, the, the phenomenal box office of Star Wars and they simply wanted to try and cash in on that. Or if there were artists really trying to explore their souls, like in Miracle Mile, you know, Steve DeJarnett. You know, waking up from nightmares every single night about nuclear Armageddon and trying to, you know, funnel that into a, a compelling what if scenario. Um, huge story to be told. And like I said, you know, marketing is a big part of it. Cold War is a big part of it. Uh, right. You know, the space shuttle and technology uh, that was the closest thing to for our generation in the 80s going you know, back into space more conveniently and easily, you know, and the, and the, the promise and and obvious pitfalls of, of what that entails there's lots going on there but you say it's definitive and we say it's definitive but is it definitive uh no there's so much more that can be told and uh to me it's a it's an ongoing journey that you'll never be able to get all the films in there that you want right you know pay close attention you'll be like wait a minute why isn't this film in there but there's just no room structurally to get it all in and so ideally we get to keep on going and keep telling the tale and keep getting those films that you do want in there. Right. And who knows, maybe it'll end up like in search of darkness where you create a trilogy mm -hmm. of in search of tomorrow. Who knows? That's, that's um, the hope, you know, the film's got to do well, uh, but the response so far has been really positive and uh, your response has been really positive and, you know, talking about it and, and discussing it really does help get the word out. And that's, what's most important to being able to continue the tale. Absolutely. Like when I, the whole reason why I approached you was because I saw the marketing for it. I saw the target, you know, I was, I was given a targeted ad and I was like, <laughs> even for in, uh, in search of darkness, um, back in 2020, I got a targeted ad and I was like, wow, this is, this is cool. Cause I love horror. Mm. And when I got the ad for in search of tomorrow, I was like, well, I love sci-fi sci too. And I love the eighties so much. And when I approached you it was because I genuinely wanted to talk to you the director, the man behind uh, the documentary, and also to watch the documentary. And after watching it, it feels like, and I and I mean this, it feels like a master class in not only 80s sci-fi, but the 80s in general. Because mm. like, for those that don't know, watching it, you touch upon all these cultural moments uh, within the 1980s and how that affected 80s cinema, specifically with sci-fi. Like you just mm. explained with uh, the space shuttle and also the Cold War, like those themes are embedded within all of the films that you curated in this documentary. Like you did a great job. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, it's a daunting task as a filmmaker just to take 10 years and, and, and try and decide what do you think are, are the sort of touch points that really define a decade. Um, and the thing is, this is, while it might resemble 
kind of a, you know, totally 80s VH1. I, this was awesome and that was awesome. Um, it's, it's more <laughs> than that. You know, it's more than a greatest right. hits package, but you have to sort of experience it to understand how it's a it's an ultimate jigsaw puzzle. And uh, it's very important to sort of stylistically make this an appealing film that, that moves fast and touches on a lot of the stuff that's in there. But, uh, you know, there's, there are themes that run through this, you know, themes of, of technology, you know, visionary technology and established technology and, and the, the good direction and the bad direction technology can go and has gone. Um, you know, that's a very important thing. I, you know, I keep on going back to the Cold War because I think that's very present in our lives yet again, unfortunately. Um, right. You know, back, back before my generation, you know, everyone would talk about duck and cover. And by the time I was... In school, you know, we had the day after and we had superpowers, you know, uh, every single day threatening to press, press the big button and we'd all, you know, perish. That was something that in revisiting uh, all the material and, and how to structure this became much more obvious to me than uh, I, I clearly repressed a lot of that. But it came back to me that, you know, I, I was part of a generation that, you know, Generation X, you know, that sat there every single day wondering if that was going to be our last day on earth because it was very much a thought that we thought on a daily basis if we if we strength in that direction so um yeah you know it's 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 quite a daunting task to to tackle a decade and i don't know if anyone can unless maybe ken burns gets you know 16 hours to do it and i know he would do a great job of course but uh this is about a genre you know, and this is about how the genre reflects a time and how a time reflects a genre. And uh, that, to me, is a great starting point to you know look at all these films and how they fit together. Right. Yeah, I can just imagine if Ken Burns, it would be like 20 hours long of like still images <laughs> zooming in and out. <laughs> That would be that would be a very different mood. Uh, you did you, a great you know, job. You know, you've hit the big time when they they name a uh, uh, an app move after you. You know, the Ken Burns <laughs> effect. Whenever you want to make movies on your iPhone, you know. So Absolutely. listen, that that and having Funko Pop, you know, you're good to go. He has a Funko Pop. No, I don't know. He probably does. He probably does. But in oh my in, in my many uh, uh, interviews with with celebrities, sometimes they say they made a Funko Pop of me. So now I can die. Yeah, our our generation's version of the bobblehead right. Funko Pop. That's hilarious. Uh, so before we go any further, let's talk about your film proper. But before we do, a segment we like to do on Syndicate is called the elevator pitch. Please stand clear of the closing door. So for those that don't know, if you're selling a movie on a friend, you really only have 60 seconds to do so. So David, here today. I want you to pitch me as if I never heard of In Search of Tomorrow. Can you do it within one minute? Well, I'm glad you tell me one minute because, you know, I, I need a longer elevator ride. But uh, <laughs> In Search of Tomorrow is a documentary that's uh, an extensive look at a decade of filmmaking, focusing on the sci-fi genre and its versatility. That is as much about the nostalgia of the era as well as the craft of the era the uh, developing effects of the era and the talent that drove this era and the Hollywood trends and box office that define this era. And it has 70 faces from the era uh, or who were affected and influenced by the era, whether they're experts or whether they're writers or directors or actors or visual effects masters. And uh, it is a 
movie that ultimately is meant to entertain, inform, and make you feel something. Excellent job. Can I hit a minute? <laughs> you you hit pretty much a minute. That, that was that was great, and you truly encapsulated uh, your entire film within that pitch. So let's get into it proper. So there's many uh, themes that you traverse in this film uh, when it comes to science fiction, and you know just like because like when I was watching this, I was like, okay, what makes an '80s sci-fi movie different than the science fiction films of today? And there's this fondness towards the future. Uh, embedded within a lot of sci-fi films in the 1980s, uh, this optimism for the future. So when you were, you know, gathering people to be in this documentary, uh, was that a common theme within the actors and the the icons of the 80s? Did they agree that there was this optimism for the future within the films, within the projects that they were working on? Yeah, they they definitely do. Um, One of the things that I think is really special about these films that I get to make is I round up a bunch of the people who were there who could tell stories about their own projects and their own experiences and their own point of view of the other stuff that that was happening at the time, whether it was entertainment or, you know, world events. Uh, But what I could do is I could, I could, craft a tale where it's not only talking about their own films, but they could talk about the films that influenced them, the moments that influenced them, the moments that touched them, that really did uh, uh, affect them just like anyone else. So I think what ultimately happens is everyone becomes pretty relatable uh, as if you're sitting around at a table, you know, at a restaurant in the back and you get to hear, you know, hang out with these, these, these legends but they're also talking about a, a time that you may or may not have been there for, but you can definitely understand because they've got the perspective that you might not have or that you could at least connect to potentially. Um, but there is uh, there was a sort of this 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 in speaking in generalities. Right. The 70s leading up to the 80s is in the post Vietnam era, the post you know Watergate era. Uh, a lot of 70s gritty filmmaking, especially with the sci-fi, was post-apocalyptic, you know, Omega Man or Soylent Green or, you know, the Planet of the Apes series, you know, um, Logan's Run. Uh, it, it was all, it was, it was Damnation Alley. It was, it was, it was some, some dark stuff going on there. Um, right. And uh, Lucas and Spielberg, and Will Wheaton talks about this. Will Wheaton is one of our uh, talking heads in this film. Uh, of Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, you know, he, he points out correctly that the the sort of darkness and, and dystopia that we were, you know, categorizing in film of that era, Spielberg and, and Lucas were sort of two folks who decided, I, I really want to, you know, go happy. <laughs> I, want, right. I want to escape into the fantasies and the joy of my youth rather than go down this dark spiral. Uh, which filmmaking is going through, you know, not all films, but a majority of the films really were following that trend because it was doing well at the box office. You know, Star Wars really changed everything. You know, Jaws was was the precursor to Star Wars. You know, we also have to point out that uh, George Lucas did THX 1138, which was also very much a 1984, you know, authoritarian uh, Orwellian tale. Um but I think he also felt the same way. You know, he wanted to make American Graffiti. He wanted to make, you know, Raiders of Lost Ark, which was, you know, uh, the, the joy, the joyful Saturday afternoon matinee serial escape that both he and Spielberg, you know, experienced. So Star Wars comes along 
and it's just rooting for the good guy. It's 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 you know booing the bad guy, and uh, the box office just blew up. And so all filmmakers, of course, look at that not only from a story perspective, but from a, a, a box office return perspective. And Hollywood will always look at a blockbuster and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, we need to change something. The Exorcist, 1973, you know, people lining up around the block, you know, Rosemary's Baby, you know, people look at these films and they say, that's doing well, that's what people want. Let's give them more of that. So that's a long way of saying that uh, by the time we get to the 80s, there's a lot more positivity. Not all of it is perfect and not all of it is ideal, but... Star Trek gets gets a you know a reboot essentially from a TV show to a you know a big screen series and um, it, it's it's a lot more positivity alongside the dystopian views that John Carpenter has in say Escape from New York or Blade Runner has and you know from Ridley Scott right like the 1970s you know. It makes sense because you have a war that most of the country did not agree with. Um, and so you have this dystopian outlook. It's kind of like 1984 come to life where you have, where you have this great distrust, uh, towards the government where previous decades you didn't really have that. And it came to fruition, uh, when you had this war that the majority of Americans didn't want to fight in. We shouldn't have been there. Uh, to fight communism like this this idea not even like they didn't even they didn't even they didn't even attack us mm-hmm. like why are why are we sending troops all the way uh, across the world to some place where you know we can't even pronounce the name of or even find on a map mm-hmm. uh, so it makes sense that dystopian uh movies would be so prevalent it would be like this social commentary that people want to dive into kind of like uh the union shadow uh presented on screen it's like i want i want to learn more of that and so when you have um george lucas who made thx 1138 where it was this almost it's kind of like an echo of like kubrick Mm -hmm. uh where it has like this like clean 60s aesthetic and uh you're presenting uh this society where like robots are in control of like this alien race that kind of look like humans and then from there he was like like you said i want to have this uh schmaltz this spielbergian schmaltz Mm -hmm. on screen of like star wars and where it's like filled with hope instead of despair and people yearned for that people wanted to be inspired in the 1980s and you have that as the foundation for the decade and everything uh came from that you have star wars you have close encounters um as the foundational bedrock of the 1980s cinema and like all the other films uh populated from there uh some of them some blatant ripoffs uh Mm -hmm. last starfighter ice pirates um i forget the other one where it's like Cause like what I miss about the 1980s and I mean, I'm a nineties kid. So like I have like the echo of the eighties in the video store segment Mm -hmm. where it's like, I remember going to blockbuster. I remember going to Hollywood video. I remember going down the aisles, like truly selecting movies based on the cover and you flip it around. And like (laughs) with, uh, I think it was ice pirates where it was like, the blurb was like stormtrooper droid army fighting, uh, the rebels in the desert. It's like, hmm. I wonder what they were inspired from, right? Like- <laughs> or, or the market. It, it might not have anything to do with that, but the marketers knew that you wanted Star Wars because you had already seen Star Wars, or Star exactly. Wars was, you know, checked out. So, what's Star Wars like? Um, there's a whole, there's a whole 
world that I experienced where I would walk down the video store aisles in search of the next Star Wars because I'd seen Star Wars so many times and I love Star Wars, but what's this something that's like Star Wars? Right. And uh, at first you're, you're really lured in, you know, you're wooed by that battle beyond the uh, battle beyond the stars artwork, you know, and then the movie's a little bit stranger and not quite the same <laughs> quality. But they're exactly. trying real hard, and it's got a lot of the elements, and, and there's lots of virtue to Battle Beyond the Stars. But you start realizing there are only so many films that are really up to the quality and caliber of these ma- major blockbuster releases, where you really start to be able to do the sniff test <laughs> of, what, of what you're getting when you're holding that VHS box in your hands. And uh, it, 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 for me, personally, I, I sort of grew to be a bit more cynical, especially because I was a teen in the eighties where I started to smell a rat more often than not, where even if it was a good film, I was like, Oh, they're trying to cash in on star Wars. I'm not interested. Not for me. And right. only many years later, after people would still be talking about some of these films and how much they love them, even though they weren't some, you know, uh, object of perfection, uh, I would visit them or revisit them or give it another try or finish it because I started it and never finished it. And I would have a greater appreciation for the work and the effort and the imagination that went in knowing full well, this is not going to be another star Wars, but what is it uh, as it stands on its own two legs? And is it something that's worthwhile for me and what I'm looking for? Cause everyone's different in terms of what they want for their own personal entertainment. Right. And like, if you fast forward today, just like using that commentary, because like we see it today again, uh, because we've gotten a reboot of Star Wars, we've gotten a reboot of Dune, like we're getting all these 1980s reboots right now. And like, they're trying to capture, I don't know if it's like a mixture of like nostalgia, or they're just trying to cash in on the established IP, kind of like, you know, in the 1980s, where it's like, okay, we have our Star Wars films, we have our alien films, it's like, how can we get some of that money? Like, how can we create a film that's like not Star Wars, but almost Star Wars? And, and studios, you're exactly right. Studios don't want to, they don't want to take the risks. These are multi, you know, it, it's more than just the budget of the film. The marketing costs equally as much. So right. if you have a $100 million film, you're spending $100 million to market around the world. Um, so you have all of a sudden a $200 million investment. If, are you going to, are you going to gamble? on an unknown film that, that an unknown, unknown IP, you know, that right. people aren't familiar with, you know, and, and, and try and establish and carve a new avenue of entertainment. Or do you take a, a recognizable name or at least stuff it with recognizable stars so you can make a return, if not a profit, on your investment? Of, so, you know, you're making Star Wars again. You're making Star Trek again, you know? Going back for more Top Gun, you know, whatever, right. what have you. Um, right. I understand it. And that's why you, one, as if you are, if you're a, a person who loves film and appreciates film um, and enjoys film passively, uh, and if your mind is even remotely in, in the business of film, even if you don't know a lot about it, not like you have to, uh, I think it's just very important to recognize that the smaller indie productions that are trying to be different and trying to be unique and trying to create new new stories that have nothing to do with established old reboots and IPs and James Bond and, you know, all the things I love, Planet of the Apes, you know, those all come back, you know, um, you got to give those a chance and you got to champion them if you do like them, because 
studios do pay attention and uh, they just they respond to what what gets buzz and what what does well at the box office and you know you, you can watch as many of the tentpole films as you want and enjoy them and spend your money on that and and as well you should to support movie theaters and a whole industry of people making these things but uh, conversely you got to support the the unknowns and champion them and bring them to light you know so we have right. some diversity right and side notes um you might be familiar with this uh, theater in Chicago. It's called the music box. Mm -hmm. And I love the music box because like, they don't really do a whole lot of, you know, new features. They mostly do older films Mm. and they mostly play them, you know, not only the older films, but like on film, 35 millimeter, even 70 millimeter. And it's, it's something special to have a movie theater that celebrates older film and like these, like very important cultural, you know, films. So like, I just want to say, like, it's very important. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm with you 100. percent I, I, I love revival theaters, and uh, when you have a whole new generation, you know, growing up, and you have uh, an older generation that wants to uh, introduce them to the stuff that that we loved uh, growing up, um, it's so much better if you have an opportunity to show it on a big screen than just pop it in and be able to sort of pause and, you know be distracted, whatever, what have you. Um, I mean, I got to take my kid to a big screen, uh, screening of start of, of Superman, the movie from 1978 with Christopher Reeve. And, you know, I was practically brought to tears when he was riveted and, 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 and trans and fixed by what was going on on the big screen. Right. And it was really funny to me too, because I was watching with a very appreciative crowd who would, who would cheer every time like a new character would, would arrive or, you know, a, a big, spectacular event would happen on screen and i said what'd you think of it he's like oh i loved it it was really really great it's the best superman i've ever seen it's so great and i'm like oh, wow. that's that was what i wanted he said but everyone kept interrupting by clapping and i couldn't concentrate <laughs> <laughs> i mean it happens like you get so uh swept up in like the story being told on on screen like you you just you get invested in the characters um and i think it was it was one of the tentpole uh actors that you had in search of tomorrow where they even said like the very most important thing which uh is the characters and that's why films of the 1980s in particular are so important and why they resonate so well is because they had these characters that were fully fleshed out like back and to like, the future like bob gale exactly. is, is is uh bob gale who is the writer co-writer with bob smekas of the back to the future trilogy and produced uh those uh it, it was so cool to have him talk about uh the making of that film and 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 the challenges of it but that, that's what he boils it down to uh, it is it's character 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 you know and if it doesn't matter how outrageous the the setting of a film is or the, the plot or the or the idea of a film is if you don't connect with those characters in that film uh, it's it's a worthless exercise, you know. It's eye candy, but there's nothing more. But if it can grab you by the heartstrings, and you care uh, about the plight of all these characters, even if it's in a comedy where you don't think anyone's going to die, nothing's at stake other than they got to get home before they disappear from, you know, uh, off of a Polaroid, you know, or something like that. Um, <laughs> right. You know, we care about this stuff, and we really, you know, I can't tell you how many contemporary movies I've watched where they they. They drop you in the middle of a very exciting chase in the beginning of the film to really get yep. your attention. 
Mm. And I'm like, all right, cool, action, here we go. And I'm watching and I'm seeing people running and I'm seeing people fighting and I'm starting to think, I don't know anything about these people. I know who the good guy is. I know who the bad guy is. That's all I know. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care because I don't know why. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Don't tell me why, but I'm not invested in the stakes of this opening scene. You know, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe James Bond is, is the exception to the rule, but you've got movies leading up to that where we know who James right. Bond is over and over and over. So you drop him in an action scene in the opening sequence. We care because we already know who he is. And that's the difference. Right. It's like, why should I care about these characters? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of films like, a, you know, I've been there too, like where you're watching the first 10 minutes of a film and it's like super exciting. You have this awesome chase scene, even from the 1980s. And what's funny about that is they have the most exciting aspect in the beginning of the film for distribution rights. So they would show it to the distributor, like, Oh, look how awesome our movie is. And they're like, this is great. I assume the rest of the movie is like this too. <laughs> and more often than not, it's boring. That's right. and cheap well, all sets. the money went to that opening scene. And then so exactly. you now have two people talking in a room for another hour and a half until you get the rest of the money for the big finale yeah uh and then you have a fight scene in like a warehouse of cardboard boxes and it's like oh isn't this exciting no it's not <laughs> i want i want the chase scene in the beginning of the movie well you know to that to that point and looking at the films that are featured in in search of tomorrow um not that the 80s was the only decade that did this but uh a lot of the characters really we really did care about a lot of the situations we really did care about i mean there's there's a reason why you put E.T. on today and you, and you say, I've seen this a hundred times. I'm not going to cry. I, I swear I'm not going to cry. Something, something's in my eye. Uh, I, I, I felt prey to it, you know, and uh, right. I couldn't believe it. But uh, maybe being a dad and you get older now, you know, things change in your life, but also things, nothing changes. And so you can right. go back to something like that and just remember not only that movie itself, but the, where you were who you were with, where you were in your life. These movies are more than just movies. You know, it's, it's times in your life that you connect to with the nostalgia just as much as the film itself. Exactly. Um, like film has such a beautiful ability to just transport you to either another world or even another point in your life. And it's like, I remember. And it's like those characters are not only characters on screen, but like, reflections of yourself Mm -hmm. and i think that's super important in science fiction in general not only for the 80s because like when you have like a movie of like 
weirdos and aliens and strange worlds. You need things to ground you. And that's why um, character, character, character is so important because it's like, why do I care about, for example, like, who's this Muad'Dib? I don't like what's what's a what's a Fremen? Like, I don't know what's going on with a Dune or Arrakis, but like uh, Paul Atreides character, it's like, oh, I understand what he's going through. Like this, like, uh, for example, like this uh, insurmountable thing that he has to do to live up to his name of being Atreides and like his father being the Duke and like him losing his father. And it's like, what does he have to do like to be a leader? It's like, we all can relate to that when looking at Paul Atreides story, for example, but like, even like Luke Skywalker of like yearning to be something bigger uh, than himself to leave Tatooine, to go and, you know, essentially fight a war or to save the princess or to become a Jedi like his father before him these, to be something bigger. These are himself. stories that we all connect to and they're crafted in a way that we can understand. And, and whether it's a fish out of water scenario, whether like, you know, I, I think a great example is like the Ghostbusters, you know, the Ghostbusters, we, we can connect with them and they're funny, but it's not really until Ernie Hudson, you know, Winston Zedmore shows up. Who's like, I just need a job. And, and if the check doesn't bounce, whatever, you know, supernatural shenanigans you're doing, I'm in. Um, right. it, it helps it helps ground the, the supernatural, silly, supernatural silliness of that movie with a point of view uh, that, you know, you now get to be one of the Ghostbusters, too. Uh, there's there's exactly. a chapter in In Search of Tomorrow that talks all about the heroes and the villain, villains and the anti-heroes. And uh, we have this wonderful uh, uh, clinical psychologist, uh, Dr. Jacob Letamendi, who's uh, from UCLA. And uh, I felt it was very important to sort of ground some of this uh, in terms of not only talking about, you know, mentioning the hero's journey, which I think Joseph mm-hmm. Campbell, we all kind of know that for, you know, story and sci-fi geeks. Uh, you know, the story of Luke Skywalker with a mentor and, you know, overcoming insurmountable odds. You know, it's all that sort of hero's journey that is applicable to so many of these stories. But, you know, understanding the psychology of even the villains and the antiheroes and why they do what they do and how there's ways to connect with them or live vicariously through their behavior because we don't do that in our lives, ideally. Um, I think it's a real good way to sort of ground that conversation. You know, and you mentioned also Paul Atreides. Um you know, this might be a silly uh, connection, but I think of, um, you know, Prince Harry, you know, and, and how he mm. has this mantle of responsibility that he's been born into, that right. he has he has decided to reject uh, at, at great cost to his life with great consequences, whatever you may think of what he's chosen to do. Um, he's like Paul Atreides, you know, uh, but he's making the decision to reject uh, his destiny. Uh, and, and forge a new path. And that to me is like a real life saga that I find it very interesting and I admire because uh, a lot of people, they focus on on the glory, you know, the riches of, of, of the kingdom and, and you know, uh, royalty and monarchy, you know, who wouldn't want that? But, you know, if you grow up, if you've seen The Crown, you can maybe understand a little more. Um, I've seen season one and two. It, it's, it, it's, it's something that these, this family has no choice over the matter. Right. And, and your life is not normal. And we all ultimately strive for normalcy. Um, even the most famous kind of, I'm sure at times have to just deal with being famous as opposed to, you know, I'm sure everyone, no matter how famous you are, you, you wistfully think, 
one day. Wouldn't it be nice to be, you know, uh, unrecognized, you know? Uh, right. Uh, and, and, and I would never, I, I, I would never, I would never want to be walking down the street, you know, where everybody knows me, you know, you just don't have your privacy anymore, you know? Right. So, um, being, being, being someone who, uh, yeah, anyway, I just think it's, it's a, an interesting parallel to draw. Yeah. And that sounds like a dystopian film, to be honest, where you can't <laughs> even go outside. I'm not talking about 2020 either. Right, right. Uh, let's circle back to the sci-fi things because uh, we mentioned it before. I mean, we talked a lot about uh, the optimism for the future, but I also want to talk about the existentialism uh, with the cold war, because like it is super relevant right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, growing up in the nineties, there wasn't, I mean, we had the collapse of the USSR. Uh, we had Bill Clinton. Like, things were mostly peaceful uh, domestically. Um, but, like, the last few years have been, it's like Game of Thrones uh, <laughs> when it comes to political uh, intrigue around the world. And with the 1980s, like, I would watch, like, 1980s film, and, like, it would just, like, click in my brain of, like, okay, let me just, like, become you know, the viewer, let me be in the shoes of a, a viewer in the 1980s, 1984 or whatever. And it's like, I can't even fathom what it was like to be like, this could be like my final day because like you have, uh, I think it was Gorbachev mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Ronald Reagan. And like, they're yeah, like well, pointing... Gorbachev, just to clarify, Gorbachev was the good guy, you, you know, after Grush, oh, okay. Brezhnev and the, and the previous guys, Gorbachev was the one who introduced in 1980, you know, the late 80s, introduced, you know, Glasnost and, 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 and really brought the USSR to, you know, the great, the great, uh, communism experiment, you know, really was not an ideal thing, uh, in terms right. of, you know, what Lenin had ideally hoped for in terms of everyone mm-hmm. is equal, um, right. socialism, all that kind of stuff, but the way they were going about it wasn't working. So, yeah. Um, right. Because ultimately you will always have top dogs. It's like, we're equal. Except me. Exactly. I'm in and even charge. if your whole society is based on that, inevitably people say, I'm special and I carve out my own perch at the top here. Like, you guys are all equal. I get to sit on my room. <laughs> exactly. And like with the 1980s films, like you had that. Like, not too overt, but like those themes, like in the background, at the forefront, not in the forefront, in the, as the foundational piece of like whatever film, like it would be there, whether it's, you know, uh, you didn't talk about Demolition Man, but, uh, no, Running yeah, Man. Not, yeah, Running Man, exactly. Yeah, look, I, I stick, I stick very, I, I adhere very closely to the very beginning and the very end of 1980 to 89. Right. But I do, I do sneak a couple, you know, from before and after just to tell the overall larger story. Uh, Total Recall sneaks in there a little bit as well. But yeah, yeah, Running Man. Anyway, go ahead. But yeah, like you have like these films that were like clearly inspired from like what was happening uh, in real life and like, uh, you know, uh, transformed into cinema to create stories that like the viewer is like, okay, I understand like a little bit of the world around me through fiction. Mm -hmm. Like what films... Uh, in particular, like stand out to you in that regard. We were talking about earlier about uh, uh, you know the post Vietnam era, you know post Watergate era. Uh, the eighties um, spent a lot of time 
uh, grappling with the post-traumatic effects of Vietnam and, and how that war really wrecked so many people at home and abroad, and especially the people who were there. You know, that's why Rambo became this, this larger-than-life superhero character to sort of fix all the wrongs and go mm. in and save the people who were still there. Um, yeah. Stallone, you know, Sylvester Stallone really sort of uh, encapsulated the, the Reagan ideal, uh, you know, that uh, good guy wins in the end. Didn't, you know, we no longer have to lose that war and withdraw. Right. You know, we didn't say we lost it, but we definitely didn't say we won it either. We mm -hmm. just left and left a big mess. Um, right. Afghanistan is very much the same way for us mm -hmm. now. But you'll recall there the third Rambo movie. <laughs> you know, Sylvester Stallone goes to Afghanistan. You know, to battle <laughs> the bad Russians and and side with the Taliban right. good guys. <laughs> Right. right. James Bond sides with the Taliban good guys too in uh, the Living Daylights. You know, we didn't know that the Taliban, you know, was ultimately uh, not be the, the good guys after all. So um, I digress because those aren't my favorite movies of the eighties, but I think they're uh, sort of a, a good example of what was going on. You know, James Cameron right. wrote Rambo two, First Blood Rambo two, uh, and he wrote Aliens at the same time. So uh, Aliens is imbued with a lot of sort of, uh, you can see sort of the Vietnam War where you, you, you go in with lots of bravado and then you're in a situation that you can't control uh, and you're outnumbered real quickly and out, outgunned and outmatched and you're running for your life. And that's very much what we were experiencing in Vietnam. Um, what movie represents the 80s? You can see I'm stalling for time because I hate to pick one. But, uh, you know, I think, I think Aliens and Blade Runner uh, if you allow me to pick two, um, I think really are, are great because Aliens is really just sort of a, an enjoyable, entertaining ride that that straddles, you know, action, sci-fi, horror. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, it shows that you can make a sequel and not a reboot because this is now the era of sequels uh, and, and add so much more energy and you don't have to ruin the childhood of the original alien, Ridley Scott's alien in 1979. Right. But you can, you can take those, you know, character and, and, and put them in a whole new situation. That's very familiar and up the, up the ante. And you just have right. an amazing film that I think so many people uh, emulated and tried to copy, uh, you know, um, and uh, you know, like if you look at predator, even when I, when predator first came out, predator is a great movie through it through. I love it. Um, but I looked at Predator when that came out. It's like, oh, that's Rambo meets the alien, you know? That's, that's right. really a gimmick here. But I like Arnold Schwarzenegger, so let's check it out. Oh, wait, <laughs> this is actually really good, you know? So that's right. the cynical side. But quickly with Blade Runner, Blade Runner is more the existential stuff you're talking about and, mm. you know, uh, creating your own slave race of, of AI automatons. But they're not automatons. Mm. They think for themselves and they revolt, you know? Right. You're living in sort of a it's not a post-apocalyptic age, but it's dystopian because it's more ideal to get off Earth. If you if you remember when in the beginning of the movie there are all these floating billboards saying you know go off you know off world, you know right. in other words like if you have the money you can get away from this shithole because we mm -hmm. kind of ruined our planet. Um, so right. it's really more um, you know meditation on on who we are as as people, what we've done to our planet, but as much what do we do for ourselves, you know, in terms of our humanity and how do we treat others and how do we coexist? And if we do coexist, what's the meaning of life? 
if there's nothing for us except day-to-day drudgery, you know? You could see right. all of that in there if you choose to. Otherwise, you see, like, you know, chasing after bad robots. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, by picking both Aliens and Blade Runner as a quintessential film of the 1980s in regards to sci-fi because, like, those are the two sides of the coin. Um, you have uh, this... Uh, macho shoot 'em up film uh aliens that also uh at the very root of it it's it's a commentary of vietnam and it's like before watching this documentary i never made that uh, uh connection and then when you and company made that connection it's like oh my god like how can i've been so blind the scales were taken from my <laughs> eyes and it's like yes like you i mean the, the iconography is all there you have like these uh space marines that look like Viet Cong, not Viet Cong, but uh, Vietnam Marines were mm-hmm. like, you know, like uh, born to die, like on right, exactly on helmets. Yep. Yeah, like, like full, the full metal jacket in in outer space. Exactly, and then you have Blade Runner, which is like this outlook on the future, but it's perverse and it's like it's not a utopia, but it's a dystopia. And it's like, you know, you can get off world. And it's like, that was like such a prevalent theme in eighties sci-fi literature, uh, where you see that coming today, like with like films like Elysium, where it's like, it's like, Oh, you like a breakaway civilization where you have like, uh, the, mo- the, the poor on earth. Oh, but do you want to leave earth since it's like, kind of like not very good. And it's like, you can go to this, uh, different world you know, ascend into the heavens metaphorically uh, to get away from the hell that is earth. It's Dickensian, you know, it's the haves and the have nots, uh, haves and the have nots. And uh, it it goes back to the earliest writings of civilization, really. You know, I I think what's great about sci-fi is that all great sci-fi is a reflection of contemporary times and contemporary sociological issues, political, so on and so forth, psychological issues. That we all experience. Uh, sometimes it's very obvious, you know, Blade Runner might be a little more obvious, you know, uh, John Carpenter's They Live, you know, you put on a pair of glasses and all of a sudden you have the clarity seeing how mm-hmm. you're being manipulated, you know, uh, right. by, by subliminal messages and <laughs> by, by aliens. But, uh, you know, right. also, you know, alien nation, you know, um, it, it's not a stretch to figure out what that's about, you know, when you have the, you know, the the ones who come in to Los Angeles from another world and take the menial jobs and, and, you know, you, the people are, are racist and bigoted against the, the newcomers saying you've taken my job while they're sitting right. at the bar, not doing their job. Um, but you can also look at, at aliens and enjoy it for what it is and choose not to, you know, art is what you make of it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you could look at Jackson Pollock and you could, you could talk for days about, you know, what that means. Or you could say, oh, that guy splattered paint against a canvas. Anybody could do that. A three-year-old could do that. But but your three-year-old did not do it. Uh, and that's why it's special. Well, he, he, I had to you give know? him a ladder because it wasn't tall enough. <laughs> anyway, but that, that's my point. I, not, I, not making judgments on Jackson Pollock. But what I'm saying is that's how people perceive it, right? You know, yes, uh, people, exactly. people go in and they judge art. You go, you, you know, you know, you go to, uh, you know, you go to the museum. Uh, Chicago has one of the greatest art museums in the world. Um, you walk past those lions and go in there and you can see art that you make your personal judgments about. Um, and you could either be uh, studied about it or you could be a lay person and still enjoy it because there, there's work and there's effort and there's message uh, or there's feel to it. 
And right. it's whatever you make of it. And you're not wrong about how you uh, perceive what you're looking at. Film is the same way. And uh, if you're watching Aliens and there's more to it, you know, Aliens isn't hitting you over the head about Vietnam. It's just like uh, going to another planet and battling, you know, insect-like, hive-like aliens. That's potentially all you need. And maybe it's just about right. a, a mother and a daughter, you know, a mother trying to find mm, her lost daughter. Right. Um, it's whatever you want to connect with. Exactly. And your film, In Search of Tomorrow, is kind of like walking through the Art Institutes in Chicago, where you have all these different paintings, but in your film, it's all these different movies. And the way I look at film, it's, it's a combination of like a really good book and a work of art, because like you have that visual element, but also it's accompanied with a story. And you do a great job of, one, curating all of these different sci-fi films of the 1980s, but also having all these important people within those films and other films adjacent to it explain the deeper meaning of all these films and also the craft. Thank you. Well, thank you. I do want to mention, since we're talking about the Art Institute, there is one other element that just sort of comes to mind, which is kind of cool, is if you, if you work, work your way through the wings of the Art Institute, there's one of my favorite sections, which is uh, uh, the armor from the, mid, from mm. the Middle Ages and the Renaissance yes. era. Uh, and you've got this exquisite art along the armor and the, the, the way the armor is designed, whether it's for warfare or whether for, it's for pomp and circumstance, you know, the weaponry and, and the protective uh, armor is really, really interesting. And you think about all the time and effort that was made to do that. That is in 80s filmmaking as well and other filmmaking of other decades. But if you look at the attention to detail of, of the costumes, the accessories of the, of the weapons, you know, uh, of the spaceships, you know, the production design, the concept design of all this stuff, uh, works of art, absolutely. And and sometimes people don't recognize because they take it for granted that a world has been built for them. Right. They don't take the time to deconstruct it. That did not exist until this movie came along. And, you know, if you're making a RoboCop, you got to build that world, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, not to knock filmmakers today, but, like, I think there is a, a level of... I don't want to say laziness, but like CGI run, run amok where they can truly create their own world uh, with a computer. But like back in the 1980s, they didn't have that luxury. I mean, look at Tron. Like that was a truly sci- uh, CGI movie and it looked like something out of Atari. Mm-hmm. Like, they couldn't really do it. So like everything in camera had to be built out or even painted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's either a combination of like real sets or if you can't get the real thing, you make a matte painting uh, to Absolutely. fill in the edges. And so having that craft element um, is super important. And like, well, whether or not it f- looks real, it feels real because mm-hmm. like the actors are interacting with something real. Uh, so I think that's what makes 1980s sci-fi or just 1980 movies in general um, very special. It's amazing. And, and to that point, I just want to just sort of throw out there that uh, I, I don't want to take away anything from the, the contemporary uh, artists and craftspeople who are doing CGI because they're still building worlds. They're drawing pictures on, on a computer and making them move and making it look real. Or they're taking things away to create a world where we won't miss it if we don't know it was there. Um, but ultimately... There's lots of imagination that goes into that as well. But there is something to be said about knowing that it's there physically with right. a lot of the people uh, on, on, in camera uh, in, in what was filmed versus, you know, added in post. 
exactly. And if you ever do a documentary on the nineties, I think that was like the golden age of like special effects. Cause like you had practical with CGI go hand in hand. Like CGI was like filling in the gaps. And then from there it transitioned to mostly computer generated images and not really practical effects. I think the best, the best computer generated images are the ones that you don't know there's any CGI. And, exactly. and usually it's something that's not a big fantasy sci-fi extravaganza because that's where you're paying attention you know to the monsters to the creatures to the aliens to the spaceships to the explosions what what have you whether it feels real or not whereas if you're talking about a period piece where all they did was they removed the telephone poles you know you don't notice it you don't think about it you think wow they really crafted a great how did they find such a, a great spot in town and and make right. it look like you know the 1800s. Well, they just shot that spot and they cleaned it up digitally, and you didn't notice because you were paying attention to the characters in the story. Yeah, the full immersion on screen. Right. So let's get to the final segments of the show. We like to do off the fence. So we're going to get definitively off the fence in regards to the 1980s. So my first question for you: Which film is the best in 1980s sci-fi? <sighs> Painful, painful, painful to ask because I can never choose one. But I would probably have to choose The Empire Strikes Back. Ooh, the Empire Strikes okay. Back, 1980. Uh, Star Wars changed my world uh, definitively. And my imagination just went in 7,000 directions. And I, I consumed as much as I could. I had the action figures. I had the story of Star Wars playing on my record player. I read the Marvel comics. But what was cool about after Star Wars is that the adventure can go in any different direction that your imagination chose. So now we now have the second Star Wars coming along and it delivered right. on all cylinders and was took this story to the next level, left us on a killer, killer cliffhanger that we had to wait three more years for the next installment to see what happens to Han Solo and uh, you know, we find out that Darth Vader and, and Luke Skywalker seem to have a, uh, you know, a, 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 an incredible connection that I don't want to spoil because nobody knows this. <laughs> um, but it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I, I've never in my entire, I've seen many, many movies and I've had wonderful movie going experiences. But if I really am forced to choose one, I don't think I've ever been ever more satisfied than watching Empire Strikes Back and being just blown away and happy. And, and I watched it twice in one day. As soon as it was over, I, I stayed in the theater <laughs> wow. back in the day when you could do that kind of stuff. And I, I went to the very front row so I wouldn't be kicked out and I watched <laughs> it again, back to back with my pals. And that's, you know, just a happy memory of being able to do that beyond the film. The cleaning crew comes in. Aren't you going to leave? I'm here early, actually. I'm helping you pick up the popcorn. <laughs> Please don't kick me out. <laughs> You know, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, Empire Strikes Back is, I would say, the best film of the 1980s sci-fi because, like, not only is it the best Star Wars film ever made, um, it's truly the best sci-fi film of the 80s, and it laid the foundation. And, like, talking about spoilers, like, yeah, I mean, who knows how Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader are connected in some way that wasn't uh, divulged before in the 1977 <laughs> film. But like in your documentary, I'm a, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And like there was a little tidbit dropped about the character Boba Fett that truly surprised me that I'll keep, you know, a secret for people that want to watch your film. But like it truly shocked. I was like, wait, 
What? I never knew that, that was the original plan. One, one of the folks in, in the film is uh, Craig Miller, and he was uh, a publicist and a writer and uh, uh, for Lucasfilm in the early days and did marketing and so on. And so he was there on the ground floor. You know, he created Bantha Tracks, which is the uh, Star Wars fan club newsletter. You know, uh, he, he created the Star Wars fan club. Um, yeah, but he would have conversations with George Lucas and uh, he had this one particular particular conversation with Lucas when he was talking about that that I just stopped in my tracks. I'm like, oh, that explains a lot. I never <laughs> knew that. I can't wait to put this in my movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that completely blew me away. And I, Boba Fett. I have to add also that we take Empire Strikes Back for granted in that imagine if that film sucked that would be it right. for star wars right and star wars would be a one off star wars would be great star wars would be forever trying to recapture the glory or just being rebooted who knows what who knows what but if that film kind of like star trek 2 wrath of khan you know these very crucial important films that that elevated what we all loved um if it was a misstep everything would be different and we would not be talking about star Wars the same way or living it the same way now. Exactly. And speaking of that, I want to bring this up earlier, but like since star Wars is such a foundational piece of 80s sci-fi and it's illustrated in your documentary, George Lucas wasn't going to set out to make an original film. He, he wanted the rights to flash Gordon, right? He wanted to make a flash Gordon film, but he couldn't get the rights. And he was like, you know what? I'll make my own, except change all the names and make it star Wars and not flash Gordon. So like, imagine if he made a flash Gordon film, like that would like seriously alter the course of history when it comes to 80s sci-fi and the flash and sci-fi in general might not have been anywhere near as fun. I don't know. Right. Right. And you did have some of the cast of Flash Gordon. Yeah, having Sam J. Jones, having Melody Anderson, having uh, Deep Roy. I mean, it, it's an embarrassment of riches, our cast. It's really wonderful <laughs> to have all these folks in the movie talking about these great things. But yeah, I, I was, I can't tell you the day that I, I, my, I saw Star Wars and my dad said to me, I said, Dad, Dad. Did you love it? Did you love it? And he's like, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, I kind of like the Flash Gordon serials more from when I was a kid, but this is very much like that. I remember he said that. And then I remembered many, 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 many years later, because I knew of Flash Gordon and I'd seen some stuff on TV reruns, but it wasn't until I saw that opening crawl in a Flash Gordon movie that is exactly like the opening crawl in Star Wars that I just stopped in my tracks and said, oh, wow, this is... There's much more in terms of wanting this to be like Flash Gordon than I realized ever because I just wasn't around for it. Right. It was like a combination of Flash Gordon meets Frank Herbert's Dune (laughs) in that it made, you know, even though it's inspired from those two, it made this beautiful original film and, you know, the rest is history. Exactly. So no wonder you, you chose Empire Strikes Back and I agree with that. So I asked you... And we talked about this before, uh, the quintessential 1980s sci-fi film. You said Aliens and Blade Runner. So I would have to agree on the Blade Runner part because, like, watching Blade Runner, the original one, like, with the synth soundtrack and, like, the aesthetics are, you know, vibrant but muted at the same time. It just screams 1980s on the celluloid uh, watching it on screen. Like, I absolutely love Blade Runner and the sequel. By Dennis Villeneuve. Well, it was very cool to have um, Sean Young uh, on, on our cast talking about it. 
Uh, there are some other folks uh, who had uh, chatted with Ridley Scott about certain details that uh, really were very, very cool that I could put in this film. And so I don't want to spoil oh, yeah. things, but uh, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. I said, master class of 1980s <laughs> is, is in this film. Like I was, I learned so much and like, not only that, like you, you have this fond appreciation for 1980s in general. So my last question for you, which film would you recommend to a friend? Um, it depends on my mood. It depends on my day. And uh, I, I like to ask my friend what they would want to see, you know, in terms of the, the mood or in terms of, you know, the type of film, you know, or subgenre. But uh, I find often my go-to is Outland by Peter Hyams, starring Sean Connery. It came out in 1981, which is essentially, it's, it's always been called High Noon in Outer Space. And uh, mm. it's basically very much like that. But to me, uh, Outland was more than just high noon in outer space. It was uh, it was world building uh, at the next level that was drafting off of the inspiration of Ridley Scott's Alien and George Lucas's you know lived in world of Star Wars. And uh, Sean Connery, for me, can never do any wrong whatsoever. You know, even in Zardoz. And so. Basically, you know, Sean, Sean Connery to me is just, you know, he could read the phone book and I'm riveted and I will pay extra money for that. And so uh, Peter Hyams, it was very cool to sit down with Peter Hyams, who is just uh, a masterful director, maybe doesn't get enough credit uh, where credit is due. You know, he tackled 2010, uh, the movie that you don't make right. a, a sequel to from Kubrick and, you know, Arthur right. Clark, but he did it and he did a great job at it. It's a great film. Uh, Outland to me. Is uh, it creates a whole new world mining colony on, on Io, Jupiter's moon. You believe mm. what's going on? Uh, I've, I've I've fantasized of living in, you know, a dark, dingy mining colony just like that. If I had to live on my moon base, and you know, moon right. base Alpha is not available from Space 1999. Outland is a great movie, uh, and I highly recommend uh, if you've never seen it. That's the one I. I that's the like if you're in the nerd club, you know it's it's, it's <laughs> underrated. And it's like, you haven't seen Outland, you need to convert. I guess I need to see Outland because I haven't seen it. But like Sean, see, now that I've and... overhyped it, though, I to interrupt you. But I, 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 I'm king of the once it's overhyped, it can never live up to the hype. But it's a good film. <laughs> I'll I'll check it out. Like um, Sean Connery in anything, like he gives it his all. Even even in Highlander, where he's supposed to play a Spanish person, and he sounds like a Scotsman still. I'll take it. Like, yeah. uh, I don't care. Listen, if if, if you want if if you've one accent and it's Sean Connery accent, I'll buy it. <laughs> exactly. You're king at Agamemnon, you know, in 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 ancient what Mesopotamia or wherever they are in time bandits, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, ancient no, it's ancient ancient. Greece, there he is. So, <laughs> oh my goodness! And the one film I would recommend from the eighties is I'm going to do the other end uh, from your recommendation, Back to the Future. No, oh, like okay. it's a fun, it's a fun ride, I, and I think anybody would appreciate it for whatever reason. Like it's a good family movie uh, that incorporates sci-fi in such a fun way, and I'm a sucker for time travel stuff, so I would have to say. Back to the Future. If anyone hasn't seen it yet, it, I yeah, that's the thing. If anyone hasn't seen it yet, maybe we should end on this. This movie is uh, it's for film for people who've seen many of these films and appreciated them. Whether or not you or not you grew up in the era is is not important because it affects you differently. If you were, if you were around, then you, you get maybe a more nostalgic connection to what's going on. 
but even if you weren't around for that or you were too young for that, um, there, there's remnants of it, like the video store element that you can connect with. But even if you weren't even around for that and you live in this digital domain that we are in now, you can understand why we won't stop talking about it. <laughs> and you exactly. can understand how this stuff, you know, how, how the world worked in the, in the pre-internet era, in the pre-digital era, and how movies were made and imagination and information finding was and marketing was just as potent or, or really establishing itself to filmmakers who make their films today and, and media makers who make their media today. Uh, they stand on the shoulders of a lot of the stuff that was pioneered, you know, in the 80s and the decades before it. And so that's what the story really is about. And uh, it's important to recognize. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And you did a great job. Well, thank you. Are you ready to close this out? Yes, let's do it. But that's it for this time on Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. We've been talking about In Search of Tomorrow. Please check it out at www.80sci-fi-doc.com. There you can order your copy of the documentary and even have your name in the credits. And you have to do it before March 22nd. Is that correct? That's correct. March 27th is our deadline. You get your name in the credits. You get some cool stuff, uh, exclusive posters and digital download and stickers and go, go to 80s sci-fi doc.com <laughs> and you can see all the cool stuff that you get. But uh, uh, we're a small company. Uh, we, we, we manufacture and distribute this ourselves and we do it in batches. So you're not going to be able to find this on streaming. You're not going to find it in the store. Uh, if you're interested, and I hope you are, you know, look, look for it at 80s sci-fi doc.com between now and March 27th. Yes. And if you want to connect with them on Instagram, it's 80 sci-fi doc. So same URL just in Instagram. Yeah. So, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. It's all 80s sci-fi doc. Amazing. So before we go, thank you so much, David, for coming on to syndicate uh, to talk about your latest documentary. This was a blast. And honestly, I learned so much of 80s sci-fi. Like, you did a great job. Oh, thank you so much. Armand. I, really, I, I, I love your deep dives on your, on your show and the things that you oh, like to explore you. and, uh, you know, there's an intellectual side to all this stuff that is, is fun to go down without getting too grainy. And I like that. That's not a backhanded compliment. <laughs> Thank you. you know, it's successful. So I, I appreciate right. it. And thanks for having me on the show. 
Oh, it's it's been a blast. Uh, you're welcome back anytime. But if you'd like to keep this conversation going, please add us on your favorite social media platform at Syndicate. That is Syndicate on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Have Discord. Feel free to join our growing film community there at syndicate.com forward slash Discord, where you can catch myself along with other podcasters and listeners talking about this film and others. But if we miss anything during this conversation, please send us a message at info at syndicate.com or visit the website syndicate.com. Until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye.